couple members of the Randy Newman fandom discussing one of his songs at random, followed by another that's a cover. It's Wheel of Randy. Hey, it's Wheel of Randy, everybody's favorite Randy Newman podcast. Wheel of Randy is part of the Good Trash Media Network. A couple of notes before the show today. My guest and I are going to be discussing several songs. Feel free to pause and listen to each song before we talk about it. If you go to our Twitter page, at Wheel of Randy, you will find links to all the songs that we're discussing today. Wheel of Randy is brought to you by Wade Engineering. Stay tuned after this episode for a message from those fine folks. Let's start the show. It's Wheel of Randy. My guest today is the associate editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Uh, he is a one of my favorite political mappers. <laughs> That's a, a a small but but intriguing subset of people that you find on Twitter. Uh, if you've seen a well-prepared map before on the news, chances are he drew it. Uh, welcome to the Wheel of Randy, everyone. Mr. J. Miles Coleman. How you doing, Miles? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. We're uh, always thrilled to have someone outside of Oklahoma join. Uh, we, we, mainly a local audience, but I, I've got global ambitions, I suppose. So, I don't blame you. Yeah. So your, your, your tweets are ones that really caught my eye, uh, especially during, oh, probably the, the 2018 race. I was, was starting to mess around with, with making some maps for some local races and, and stumbled upon what everyone calls election Twitter. And I, I'm fascinated by the, this group of people because it, it, it's people who, are, who love politics and who love mapping. Um, and there's just this great camaraderie uh, um, among the, the people on there. Um, well, and you know always, what I'm going to say on that, too, is that, you know, it's, all, it's a pretty new thing because it really kind of took off maybe after the 2016 election. Uh, because before that, it was pretty much uh, it was just pretty much me, Matt Isbell from Florida, uh, MCI Maps. Uh, because I re I remember the days when you know it was me and Matt just in 2014 to 2015 around that then uh, we'd be posting the same type of things we do now, but just no, <laughs> we wouldn't get nearly as many interactions. Uh, but you know, it's really, it's really nice that we have, uh, we have something like this now. I'm surprised how, how the, this community has its, its own, its own collection of, of memes and inside jokes. It seems like everyone's obsessed with Donna Shalala in this group. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The, 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 uh, uh, Donna Shalala did have a little bit of fall from grace recently because there were some, uh, I don't think she was necessarily at fault because, because there were some allegations of maybe inside trading on, on, on 
her part, but I think it was more of just she was, you know, she's not she's not the youngest member of Congress, so I just didn't think she was into, you know, she uh, was paying attention to her stocks, but it still looked bad. So, uh, but yeah, we have, uh, uh, you, know, you know, we we have all of these memes that we do. Uh, in 2018, uh, one of my personal favorites was uh, for the Pennsylvania Senate race that year. Uh, Bob Casey's opponent, uh, Lou Barletter, who was a Republican member of the House, uh, this was probably around summer of 2018. Uh, there was this poll that came out, and of course, it was a, it was fairly evident early on that it was that it was going to be a blue wave year. Uh, there was this poll that had something like uh, Casey was up something like 47 to 32 over Lou Barletta. And the Barletta campaign's kind of take on that was, wow, uh, 53% of people won't vote for Bob Casey. So oh. <laughs> so every time there's a poll of like that, 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 that uh, we will, uh, oh, well, uh, uh, 53% of people will vote for this person, even though if they're ahead. So yeah, we, uh, we have all these memes. <laughs> <laughs> Over at, at Sabato's Crystal Ball, I imagine you're, you're getting into your busy season here uh, as, as the, the, the primaries are, are, are winding up and, and we're starting to see congressional races take shape. Uh, are you just locking all commitments out until November? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we do have, it's, uh, well, what really has kind of thrown us for a loop, loop is, of course, like everyone else, the virus. Uh, because there would, would be stuff like, uh, one of the things we, we were planning going into this year was we wanted to do some type of uh, political forecasters combat that interest, and maybe around the time of the of the convent of the uh you gotta know of the dnc and the rnc we started planning that out in earnest probably at the beginning of this year but you know it's just you know we're not with the uh, with the virus i don't think it would be very wise to have any conventions right now mm-hmm. uh so stuff like that but yeah it's it's uh we're definitely starting to uh wind up into our busy season with some of these primaries. Uh, what's, uh, what's nice for me is, you know, I'm not, you know, it's good that a lot of people pay attention to the presidential races, but I'm, I like the down ballot races myself more. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the presidential stuff more or less winding down, uh, you, know, you know, throughout the summer, we have a lot of these, uh, Congressional primaries, which are nice to pop out, but uh, I mean, one of the it's nice for me to have these, you know, on a Tuesday if we have an election. That's always nice. But uh, I've talked about this some online, but election day is more like election week now uh, because a lot of these states uh, it, it takes so long for them to count all their ballots, uh, and that really. Uh, just watching these elections over these past few weeks, I just think to myself, okay, well, it's, uh, it might not, you know, I think we're used to having a few states that kind of take their time to count their ballot, count their 
ballots, some states that are heavily mail-in, like California or Arizona. Okay, that's cool. Uh, but, when I, but when it becomes every state, <laughs> you know, it's a little frustrating. Right. And, you know, even for – it's frustrating for even the, those of us who follow this closely because, of course, me, be, me, be, be, and me, election nights for, like, my Christmas. So, you know, I want to get out – I want to get my maps out as fast as I can. I want to get those retweets and, you know, that, and kind of chase that. Uh, but now we're having to – wait maybe a few days. And I just think that uh, if we don't, if, if we don't change some big things by November, you know, what are people on the street going to be thinking when, uh, when they see the vote totals constantly changing? I'm like, okay, well, uh, I was watching, uh, I was watching uh, the, the results kind of trickle in a few weeks ago when I was watching uh, Georgia and I'm like, okay, well, I wonder, I wonder how many conspiracy theories Trump and his people are, are, are going to come up with about this stuff. So we'll see. I just have kind of, uh, I just really worry that if the election results reporting doesn't get better, uh, come time for the general election, there are going to be a lot of people who don't really, uh, who don't really accept the results as legitimate. I, I especially noticed this uh, in, in February when, when the Iowa caucus results were trickling in and yeah, well, everyone had, was uh, just rabidly wanting, you know, to, to seize the news cycle that night and need a winner right then. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. It's like, well, I had, uh, I had a tweet on it uh, a few weeks ago when it was like, yeah, it's really, uh, I can't really understate how much the damn Iowa caucus set the tone for the rest of this year in terms of election reporting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so how are the pollsters and the, the projectors and, and the, the, the election modelers factoring the virus in? Do we have a feel yet for what turnout is going to look like and whether whether the virus is going to, to favor turnout to one side or the other? Well, what we saw in, uh, at least what we saw in the prime primaries was states that are at least comparing to 2016, because I remember like one of the big, uh, one of the big primary nights we had after the pandemic became like, I thought, <laughs> became like a thing. Uh, I remember Arizona, Florida, and Illinois all voted on the same day. Ohio was going to be in there, but they pushed theirs back. So I think this was back in maybe mid-March. And what we saw was, uh, compared to 2016, voter turnout in Florida and Arizona was uh, about the same or slightly up. Hmm. Uh, which was, okay, well, I don't think it's a coincidence that both of those states, uh, there, was a heavy, uh, there was a heavy presence of vote by mail. Uh, so that probably helped. Whereas if you looked at Illinois, which also voted that same day, uh, it's more of a traditional state in that, uh, you know, you go to the polls and, you know, you do show up in person. Turnout in Illinois was down like something like 25%. So a notable drop. 
so I think that we're seeing these, uh, we're seeing some states uh, that had their primaries a bit more recently. Uh, Iowa, for example, uh, what my understanding is that the Secretary of State in Iowa sent out a mail-in ballot request to every voter before the primary. Uh, and in the Iowa primary, the Democrats outvoted Republicans something like 53 to 47. Uh, and a few days after the primary, uh, it, it came out that the Republican legislature is trying to uh, is was trying to pass legislation prohibiting the Secretary of State from uh, automatically giving absentee requests to every b- b- voter. So I'm like, huh, I wonder, uh, I wonder why that was. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, it's always, uh, which for me it's interesting because uh, if we talk about turnout, in 2016, one, one of the reasons Trump was able to win is he was in states like, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, et cetera, he was able to turn out voters who don't frequently vote. Right. Uh, and, you know, he, what, uh, for me as a Democrat, you know, I've been uh, probably pretty clear about this on Twitter, is that, yeah, my, uh, when it comes to handicapping these racists, I try to be, you know, as objective as nonpartisan as I can, but politically I'm a blue dog, which, uh, which actually, if you're a political forecaster, that's about as, uh, politically, that's probably the ideal for, for me as a blue dog. Uh, I, I have a lot of stuff I don't like about other sides. All right. Uh, right. <laughs> but, uh, I do remember looking at some of the returns in 2016, uh, from places like uh, northern Michigan or northern Wisconsin, which are Republican areas, Obama didn't Obama didn't get destroyed there. He lost them, but of course they swung heavily to Trump. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, Trump did very well in these areas. I bet that was because it had low turnout. And I was looking. No, turnout from 2012 to 2016 in these areas it was, was actually up. So it's like Trump inspired people to come out and vote for him. That's maybe one reason why the, uh, why the Democrats shouldn't read too much into some of their gains that they made in the midterms. Uh, because if you, look, if you look at a state like Michigan, I mean – Gretchen Whitmer did very well in uh, Oakland County, uh, uh, Kent County, some of the more uh, some of the more educated, wealthier areas of the state. So where uh, where Hillary Clinton did pretty good, I mean Gretchen Whitmer did really great, but she was still running behind what Obama got in most of these rural areas. So a lot of the gains that the Democrats have made have been kind of on the backs of these more educated voters. And, okay, well, in in 2018, what if a lot of these, if these voters that are Trump voters but are not necessarily Republican voters uh, turn, uh, turn out? So 
Uh, I don't think for Republicans that higher turnout would necessarily be uh, a strike against them in all places. As uh, I know that uh, I know that President Trump isn't a fan of mail-in voting, uh, but one of the most heavily uh, heavily mailing vote voting states right now is Utah. And, you know, there's, uh, that's a state where the Republicans do pretty well. (laughs) But I do think that if, uh, if the states pursue mail in voting, which I probably, there's going to be, regardless of how long the virus kind of persists or how long the pandemic pandemic hangs around, I can see voters have more having more of a demand for that in the, the, the fall. So they uh, they really need to start logistically preparing for this now. There was uh, Wisconsin, I know, uh, had uh, with its presidential primary, it had a pretty high profile state Supreme Court race, and this was you know maybe a month after the. the pandemic became a thing mm-hmm. and you would hear stories about okay well these uh some of these county uh, uh election offices are running out of uh are running out of envelopes to stuff their ballots you know so logistically there's a lot of stuff that goes into it uh i'm from oklahoma city and we're we're in oklahoma district five kendra horns district and kendra really had one of the most fascinating races in, in 2018 surprised a yeah. lot of people. Uh, as an outsider, I'd like your perspective on, on, on how Kendra was able to pull off that win and get us a patch of blue here in Oklahoma. Yeah. Well, uh, if, uh, when it always comes to that race, I cite, uh, one of my friends, his name is Noah, uh, he, uh, he was really one of the first people who, uh, who had Oklahoma five as a toss of sup, uh, whereas most of the, uh, I wasn't working for the, 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 the crystal ball back then, but most of the big handicappers had it at least leans or likely Republican. Right. Uh, right. But it just, uh, to me as a kind of Nash, I don't know, uh, person who observes these races, it just really profiled as the, you know, it's one of the more educated areas of Oklahoma. Uh, it just has that. Uh, it fits the type of a district that would be uh, that would be trending down a Democratic. I mean, for uh, really for me, the first uh, the first election cycle where I uh, really followed a lot of these down ballot races was in 2010. And I remember looking at the map that night. Of course, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty red wave. But you looked at Oklahoma, and the only seat they held back then was with Dan Bourne out in Oklahoma too. More of what what I would call the ancestrally Democratic region of Oklahoma out in Little Dixie. Yeah. Uh, you know, ancestrally Democratic, uh, not uh, much more of a working class population out there. Uh, no, that was uh, flash forward to 2018. That was a pretty easy hold for the Republicans. Oh. Um, but the horn race was interesting because if you looked at uh, even in the gubernatorial race that year, I know uh, I think Joe Edmondson was from out in Oklahoma too as well. 
Yes. And he lost it, but he still, but he still won uh, Oklahoma five by like nine points. Right. Uh, so it just speaks to uh, speaks to some of the realignment that's going on in Oklahoma. So Oklahoma, we're seeing a little of that too. And I remember, I remember uh, during the primary, I uh, I made a map of uh, the primary and. Uh, of course, it was it was a win for Biden, but in 2016, Oklahoma was really one of the uh, one of the kind of shots in the arm for the Sanders campaign. Uh, he had a pretty big win there back in uh, back in 2016, and uh, what Sanders did was he won basically by. Uh, by really running up the score in a lot of the rural areas. In fact, I think, uh, which was maybe another sign of the realignment, was I think Oklahoma 5 in 2016, at least in the primary, uh, was the only district that Hillary won in Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, So that maybe was a sign of where it was moving. If you look at the uh, votes that were cast in the Oklahoma primary from 2016 to – 2020, uh, basically most of the rural areas of Oklahoma have basically want nothing to do with the Democratic Party anymore. Uh, So in the 2020 primary, they cast much fewer votes, uh, whereas if you look at where turnout was up in the primary, I think uh, Oklahoma 5 had the – had the highest increase in Democratic participation. I think uh, Oklahoma won the Tulsa area, of course, is uh, is maybe had a slight Democratic uptick. It's not uh, – Tulsa is uh, kind of clinging to its traditional uh, – Republican affiliation more than Oklahoma City is, yeah, uh, but there, even, there are pockets of blue in Tulsa. But it, 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 it's there's a very different feel between the two cities, just culturally. That's kind of the feel I get with which it's almost uh, you know I really uh, I kind of make a joke uh, because for me, if you look. Uh, if you look at the states I've traveled to personally, I, I kind of joke that I've been to most of the states that Jimmy Carter won in 1976, which Oklahoma is not. It's not there. Uh, but it kind of makes it. Uh, it kind of makes it good for me because you know if I haven't been there myself, I can only stick to what I'm seeing in terms of numbers and data, et cetera. Uh, but I do th- think that in terms of, uh, in terms of what we saw in the primary, it's a pretty good sign for the Democrats that, uh, that in the presidential primary enthusiasm in the Oklahoma city area uh, was, uh, was, up from 2016, even though it was down in most of the rest of the state. I think kind of whichever, uh, whichever one of those Republicans gets it, I kind of, uh, I don't really anticipate, you know, 
barring some sort of massive, uh, massive blue wave nationally, I don't think we would be uh, too tempted to move that out of the toss-up category. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if I think uh, I know in 2016 Trump won Oklahoma five by like maybe 13 points. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe this time, given some of the trends we've seen in the area, Trump still holds it, but maybe instead of 13, maybe he wins it by maybe five or six. So, which would probably help Warren as well. You know, we, we Oklahoma Democrats, uh, we live for Pyrrhic victories. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're like, uh, we, we know that if Horn wins this time, uh, it'll be her last hurrah because once we redistrict, yeah. uh, this, this district will go much more rural. Um, yeah, it's, still, it's uh, in college, I went to, uh, I went to LSU. Uh, the, at the time, I was involved with, the college, the Democrats there, and I do, I do remember doing some phone banking and that that that, that stuff. I kind of going into the uh, into the 2012 election, and I remember that there were only uh, there were only like five or six states where Obama did better in 2012 than he did in 08. And Louisiana was one of those states. I, I didn't know, and it was it was uh, you know it was kind of the difference from uh, I think Obama went from like for forty percent in '08 to maybe forty one point five. But I'm like, okay, well that's uh, <laughs> I'm taking some credit there as one of the few states where Obama improved in. <laughs> you did it, man. <laughs> we're, we're, we'd just be thrilled if we can get get one county to 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 vote biden this year yeah, yeah, yeah. uh I, it uh clinton gore were the last ones to win a county in oklahoma so you know that, that that's our big goal around here yeah yeah i i normally when when i have people on i i, I have them pick a song you're, you're kind of backwards because i had a song i wanted an expert <laughs> on and um i what tell everyone what song you've brought to the show today yeah so uh we were talking about the kingfish by randy newman right the kingfish yeah this is uh well for our, our listeners you can can go to our our twitter page now at wheel of randy and we'll have a link to kingfish and to the other songs that we're going to talk about today so yeah kingfish off of the uh the the infamous album good old boys where he he, he uh, manages to insult LSU people. One oh, yeah. <laughs> and college boys from LSU, when and dumb came out dumb too. <laughs> yep. I, I made the mistake of, of referencing that before the uh, before LSU and Oklahoma played last year. And <laughs> oh yeah. Deleted it right away after that <laughs> disaster. Um, so. Yeah, let let's talk about Kingfish because this is this is uh, this is a Huey Long song. Um, in fact, on the album, it, it's preceded by a song that Huey literally wrote, uh, "Every Man a King." Yeah. As someone from Louisiana, I, I I know everyone has an opinion, but 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 as as someone who who just barely knew about Huey Long, 
the more I read up on him after after listening to the song, uh, he's just a fascinating guy. Oh yeah, uh, well, well, he is. Uh, I feel like uh, every time I read a book or something on Dewey Lopabong, it's like uh, he's one of those characters where you read something one page and you think, okay, well, he can't. He can't possibly do anything crazier. And then you look at the next page, and he does. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. he's, uh, he was uh, definitely, uh, you know, as someone who grew up in Louisiana, he's, uh, I mean, there's, uh, there's, still a lot of, there's still a lot of stuff named after him there. Uh, and it's really, I, I think that one of his, uh, one of his legacies is that we're not, uh, this may be, may be a good and a bad thing because honestly, when it comes to Dewey Long, there's a lot of stuff that's both good, good and bad. Uh, but in Louisiana, we, we're not really towards the top of most of the metrics in terms of, you know, well-being, uh, our fiscal house. Uh, and I think, Maybe a lot of that is our politics there. It was always, we view politics as entertainment there. Uh, one of my uh, favorite professors in college, his name is Wayne Parent, uh, he wrote a, a, a book uh, on, uh, on Louisiana politics, and the, uh, and the, the title of it is uh, Inside, the, Inside the Carnival. You know, that's how, <laughs> that's yeah. how we politics there and a lot of it is with uh, do, uh, with Dewey Long being a good example of this and you get to kind of Edwin Edwards and the Landrews. Louisiana were very big on personalities in our politics and he was really the, 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 uh, the, the first big personality in Louisiana politics and even uh, we talk about Joey Long a lot, which rightfully so, uh, but it was really, uh, he, you may have read about him too, but his brother Earl Long really put, uh, really put in place a lot of Joey Long's uh, policies within the state when it came to, uh, basically we, uh, Everyone knew that Yui Wong had these national ambitions. Uh, Earl Wong was more of the one who, uh, back in those days, Louisiana was more like uh, the governor of Louisiana can only serve for for uh, one consecutive term at a time. Oh. So uh, back then, uh, it was really a, uh, of course, it was a one-part party state. So back then it was more the the internal Democratic Party politics was more the longs versus what they call the anti-lobo of longs. And even uh, even after Dewey Long was shot in 1985, uh, his brother uh, his brother Earl Long and basically the, the rest of the uh, the rest of the Longite faction of the Democratic Party if they were in power, you would always see increases on stuff like social spending, well, well, fair, uh, 
I tended to think if you were uh, if you were over sixty five years old or something like that, you would get a payment uh, every month if the loans were in power. Uh, so stuff like that, and uh, usually when the uh, sometimes uh, sometimes the state would elect a governor from the anti-long faction of the party, and uh, they really, uh, I think that Erlong had a really good quote when he said, okay, well, 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 uh, well, uh, one day the people of the state are going to get a good government, and they ain't going to like it, and, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of what the state of politics was. Uh, and in fact, in, uh, in 1952, the governor who was elected then, his name was Bob Kennan. And he was very much a good government type, anti-long. Uh, he's like, okay, well, I want to, uh, I want to run the state government as you would find in a textbook. Uh, so that was good, but as soon as he, uh, one of the things that Bob Kennan did, did, did was he, uh, he replaced the kind of patronage spoil systems that the Longs had put in place, uh, with a kind of a merit-based, uh, uh, but as soon as Bob Kennan left office in 1956, uh, they elected uh, they elected Earl Lamont, and basically all of kind of Kennan's good government reforms went out the window, and it was back to the spoils system. So uh, it's like the uh, the opponents of Long would definitely get their fits and starts of power throughout the years, uh, but they didn't really have much staying power. And I think uh, one of the this uh, may be a pretty good topic to touch on, consider it's Juneteenth. Uh, what really, there was an episode at the end of Erlong's, oh, the life, he died in, uh, he left, he left office in 1960, I think he died that year shortly after is uh, at the end of his career, there was this episode where Earl Long had had sort of a mental breakdown. Uh, they had to, uh, they had to put him in a psychiatric ward. Uh, and that was because he was having a big fight with the legislature uh, because he wanted to expand the rights of, uh, African-Americans, excuse me, <clears throat> when it came to voting. And that, to me, really, really encapsulates what the Longs were. They were Southern populists, but unlike a lot of those in the South, they really didn't, they really didn't try to make things into a racial or uh, usually what white politicians of that era did, especially when they were trying to get, 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 get uh, votes from a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the poor whites in the region, they'd be like, okay, well, you're uh, 
you obviously don't have it good, but we're going to make sure the blacks have it even worse. Uh, and and the, I, I think a lot of people don't realize just just how prevalent the Klan was in, in Southern Democrat politics, especially oh, yeah. in the 20s. That I, uh, People need that, to read about the 1924 DNC convention. It was insane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, and not to say that there weren't pockets of that in Louisiana because there were. Uh, one of my favorite books is called The Almanac of, of American Politics, and they started uh, they started do this in 1972. Uh, basically, every two years they uh, they put out a new edition. And they talk about basically each member of Congress, each state. Uh, the oldest edition I have of it is from 1974. And they were talking about the 6th District of Louisiana, which at the time it was basically uh, basically the Baton Rouge area to maybe the, uh, the border with Mississippi. And uh, at the time... The congressman from the 6th District of Louisiana, his name was John Rarick. He was uh, basically the Louis Gohmert of his time. You know, he okay. would uh, kind of dabble into all these conspiracy theories. He had uh, maybe some background with the Klan, uh, very much a white supremacist. And uh, what the Almanac does is uh, in every uh, – for every congressional disaster, it, it kind of gives you a profile of you know, the uh, area, the state of politics that they're uh, – when they're talking about the 6th District of Louisiana back then, they start off by saying, uh, well, uh, politics in the 6th District uh, is best summed up as a mix of petrochemicals and hooded roads. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so uh not to uh not to say that Louisiana was completely immune uh, be, 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 be. even uh even into the nineteen nineties, uh this guy and I'm sure you all heard of him and he's still around sadly. His name was David Duke, he's still a thing. Yeah. Uh you know, he was uh Duke kinda took up that populist mantle that Long did in in a sense because it's it's almost Trumpian in a way because uh, what gave Duke kind of some uh, the attention well, well, well why, as he uh, I feel like when it comes to Louisiana politics we talk a lot about the 1991 gubernatorial race where it was uh, where it was, of course, Edwin Edwards and Dave, but uh, in 1990, the year before that, uh, that's when Duke uh, kind of made his first uh, his first run for statewide office, and uh, he was running uh, he was running against San San Senator J. Ben Ben Johnston. Johnston had been there since the 70s, and of course, being from Louisiana, he was he was a Democrat. Uh, he, Johnston was angling to become minority uh, leader, or uh, I guess by 88, 90, he would have been trying to become the majority leader. Of course, they went with George Mitchell instead, uh, but 
Johnston, for most of his career in the fashion of Louisiana, he was a pretty conservative Democrat. Well, if you want to be the majority leader, you have to, by that point, the National Party was getting more liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Johnson had to take more of these liberal positions and, okay, here comes, uh, here comes this upstart guy named David Duke. I think everyone... Uh, I think back in those days, his affiliation with the Klan was known, but it wasn't uh, maybe not as much of a liability in those days. Uh, But here's this guy, Dave, trying to uh, kind of frame his message to the white working class, uh, the same constituency that basically Dewey Long had back in those days. And he comes along and he wins a majority of the white vote against Dray Bannett Johnston. So it's, uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, transition that uh, they had. And I think uh, maybe one of the reasons why Long didn't really play on racial politics as that as much is uh, Louisiana is really three states in one. Uh, they kind of, uh, Randy Newman kind of references this in the song. He goes after the Frenchman. Frenchman, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talks to us about, okay, well, uh, in, uh, mm-hmm. in North Louisiana, everyone's just a bunch of crackers, right? Uh, but what he's kind of, uh, which does a good job there, uh, mm-hmm. but the disadvantage that long, uh, Back in those days, and even to an extent today, uh, in Louisiana, you have the New Orleans area, you have North Louisiana, which, you know, that, that's where uh, either have been, uh, I really think Randy Newman hits it on the head, uh, because uh, either been when, when, when I was taking a course on, uh, at, at uh, LSU on the Louisiana politics, they were like, okay, well, uh, up in North Louisiana, it's dominated by what we call the cracker culture. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but the con- what makes Louisiana different is uh, the uh, if you go to the southwestern parts of the state, that's what we call Acadiana. Uh, like New Orleans, it's uh, it's historically Catholic. So, I think Long being uh, uh, basically to win statewide office shut, you had to go win at least two of those three areas. Mm-hmm. And what makes it, uh, so that was, uh, that was kind of the, uh, kind of the, the breakdown of the state, which made it a little more, a little more complicated than white versus black. Uh, because if you, uh, if you look at some of the voting patterns uh in the day Dave South, kind of at the turn of the central country, uh, in most states in the deep south, like Mississippi, Alabama, uh, there was some blacks that would vote. I mean, it was nothing. Um, um, I mean, usually you would find in those other deep south states, uh, you would find maybe. Five percent of the black population voted uh, voted regularly in elections. Uh, if you go to Acadiana, 
it was more like 15 or 20 persons. And so oh. uh, traditionally the Cajuns were a little more tolerant when it came to, uh, when it came to these racial, uh, these, uh, these racial issues. And I mean, it kind of, uh, you could really see that in uh, some of the other cultural stuff as well. Of course, one, one of the things that we're most known for in New Orleans is Mardi Gras. Most of Acadiana will have uh, Mardi Gras parades as well. Uh, but if you go to North Louisiana, which is mostly Protestant, they basically think that, that, that uh, basically that Mardi Gras is evil. So, you know, it's just, it's a lot of, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty common if you're talking to someone from North Louisiana that, okay, uh, uh, it's a pretty interesting state. I feel like these days, uh, a lot of those old, uh, of those old regional divisions have kind of, uh, Louisiana is more like the rest of the country in that. Politics now these days is more like urban versus rural. Though we did see in uh, in the gubernatorial race uh, last year in Louisiana that was uh, that was probably uh, one of my, one of my favorite elections being from there. Uh, I thought it was interesting that basically you had Governor John Bell. Edwards, and at least in the primary, his uh, his two opponents were Congressman Ralph Abraham from kind of North Louisiana, and Eddie Rispone, who was from the Baton Rouge area. Uh, Abraham's strategy almost reminded me of Huey Long, uh, because he would uh, Abraham did very well in his uh, in his district up in North Louisiana. Uh, but other than that, he really tried to court the Cajun vote, uh, and he did pretty well in Acadiana. Uh, but what what hurt him is he just wasn't uh, wasn't as well funded as Rispone was. So uh, Rispone was able to get a bigger vote out of a lot of the metro areas. Uh, there was. Uh, from back in the day, day, day that, the, that there was the, that uh, there's this famous story about Dewey Long, where being from North Louisiana, he had to uh, he was campaigning in maybe around Lafayette, which is in South Louisiana. But uh, he told uh, he told the story uh, Long himself. He was a Baptist, so he's trying to court the Catholic vote. It's like okay, well, uh, when, 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 when I was a kid, <laughs> every Sunday morning, I would wake up at six a.m. I'd get a horse and a horse and buggy, and I would take my Catholic uh, grandparents to mass. I would take them home, and at eight o'clock, I would hitch up my horse and buggy again. And I would take my other grandparents who were Baptist to serve out of Baptist. And, and, and I'd, uh, after that, I'd basically take him back home. And after he gives this speech, one of the guys who's working on his campaign uh, asked Shui Long, uh, hey, I didn't know you had Catholic grandparents. 
And and you know what Long says? He's like, uh, he's like, don't be an idiot. I didn't even own a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's probably one of, one, one of the most favorite stories. And uh, there's uh, one of the things that Long was famous for doing as governor is uh, back in those days, Louisiana was a very uh, it had one of the highest rates of illiteracy. So he really, uh, one of his most famous programs was for free school books. Uh, but other than that, he really liked to, uh, he liked to build roads uh, because for him, much of the state wasn't paved back then. Yeah. So for him, uh, Making these new roads was, uh, it was something that you could really see that, okay, we're helping the state. Uh, it was, uh, no pun intended, it was more concrete. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things uh, before Long was in politics, uh, right out of high school, he was, uh, he was a traveling sa- sa- salesman. Mm-hmm. And there's a story. Uh, he's uh, he's driving through Alexandria, which is kind of uh, right as you. It's probably the most uh, one of the bigger cities when you hit when you start driving up into North Louisiana. So he's going through Alexandria, and he goes on this road where where they make him pay a toll. Okay, well, when he's governor, he remembers that. And when he's building his roads, he builds a new road right around Alexandria. (laughs) So uh, he'd remember that. He'd be very, uh, he'd be very vindictive. I mean, he was, uh, he almost reminded me of Trump in that he's, uh, if he's with you, he's really with you, but you don't want to cross him. Uh, uh, and it was, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, think of uh, some of my other uh, stories about Joey Long. Is he was uh, at first he was a big s- supporter of uh, FDR in 1932. Uh, what FDR had. Uh, FDR saw that, that, okay, for a politician, Long was, he was a pretty good speaker. Uh, so he did help, uh, he did help FDR in the 32 election. Uh, however, uh, FDR would send him to these campaign, uh, to make speeches for him in these states like, uh, uh, states like Kansas and Nebraska, which weren't, which weren't really critical to the Electoral College. Right. Uh, and I think part of that was FDR kind of knew early on uh, that Long is maybe someone who he didn't, who he could potentially be overshadowed by. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, okay, well, 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 well. Uh, I would think for Billy Long, his type of uh, populist message, he was close with labor. You know, now, okay, well, 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 well uh, why didn't FDR send him to, uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, I know in 
32 Pennsylvania stuck with Hoover. What if FDR dispatched Long out to the mines of Western Pennsylvania? Well, maybe he, he would have won the state that year. Uh-huh. Uh, I kind of think, okay, well, 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 uh, FDR kind of uh, won in such a landslide, it didn't really matter. Uh, but I think Long kind of got, after that campaign, he started to think, okay, well, they've kind of, uh, they've kind of been sidelined. So he was, uh, of course, he was assassinated in 1935. But before that, he was, there were rumblings of him running as an independent candidate on his, uh, uh, with his share of our wealth party. Uh, basically what his master plan was going to be uh, was he was going to run as a third party in 96. And that, that, that was basically going to cost, uh, cost FDR the election. And Long was going to become a Democrat in 19 football party. And he was basically, uh, basically going to be their savior that year. So, you know, whether that not, would not too different from Strom Thurmond and George Wallace's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so not to, uh, I know, uh, I feel like these, I feel like these days that may not play out so well. Uh, yeah. but that was kind of, uh, that was kind of his plan back in the day. day and, uh, I was talking again about the, uh, about the gubernatorial election that is there and uh, we kind of touched on this earlier and I've had this uh, I've thought about this a few times when I've listened to the song uh, where Randy Newman talks about the uh, about the contrast between the uptight Frenchman and the crackers uh, well if you look at the math from last year John Bell Edwards uh, you know he if you could go into a lab and draw up the perfect Democratic candidate for Louisiana these days, it would be John Bell Edwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Edwards, at least in terms of the song, he would have done better with the uptight Frenchman than he would with the Crackers. Huh. Uh, so kind of an opposite from, uh, from how Dewey Long was able to win back in those days. Mm. Uh, even with these red states like Louisiana and Oklahoma, uh, we're still seeing these uh, partisan kind of changes. And I did, did do uh, because you're in Oklahoma. I know that for uh, for Huey Long, after he got out of high school, I, he worked as a traveling salesman. But I think he did he did go to college in Oklahoma briefly. He didn't graduate. Yeah, he went to OBU and then he went to the University of Oklahoma Law School. Yeah, and then, then, then uh, I, I think he maybe spent a semester or two there. Then he transferred down to Tulane for about a year, and he got uh, he kind of got sick of school, and he lobbied them to give him the bar test early after only one year of law school, and he passed. So. <laughs> You know, that's a that's a badass move, kinda right there. Uh, hey, I've I've gotta ask you about one line from this song because sure. I it he talks about taking on standard oil and whipping their yes. ass. Yes. Now, 
every politician, I don't care if you're blue or red in Oklahoma, uh, is clawing all over themselves to make nice with the oil companies. Right. Uh, That's the, the most liberal candidate out here is still, we love our hard work and oil and gas people. Uh, I, it's in, unfathomable to me to hear a, a politician brag about taking on the oil companies. What's the story behind this? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, pretty much like that in Louisiana, too. Uh, if you uh, really go into the uh, time, into the 2014 election, uh, she, ultimately, she ultimately ended up losing. Uh, but Mary Landrew always took care of the uh, of the kind of oil companies and the uh, and the kind of energy uh, interests in her state. Uh, mm-hmm. But what Long was he was uh, he got his start in politics on the state railroad coming mission. Uh, which I think uh, the only reason he ran for that office first, because I think it was the only office that didn't have a minimum age. So he just wanted to turn, he just wanted to run for whatever he could. So basically what the, uh, what the railroad commission did add is uh, it's kind of uh, what we have now in the, the state, it's called the public service commission. Uh, this was uh the railroad commission was kind of its predecessor, uh, but basically it regulated the utilities. And in Long's video, he just saw uh, he just saw Standard Oil as this big monopoly who was kind of beating up on the uh, average worker. Uh, so that's where a lot of his uh, animus towards the uh, towards Standard Oil came from. From. In fact, he, uh, I know long once he, uh, once he became more established in politics, he, uh, he helped found an oil company of his own. It was called Win or Lose. Uh, it was a pretty, uh, was a pretty lucrative enterprise for him. Uh, but I think it just, uh, the oil industry probably didn't employ as many people in the state as it does now. So it was probably by going after the dirt, it kind of fit into his populist message about uh, going after the after the monopolies and the bad bad guys and stuff like that. So that's what uh, that's what I think a lot of it was. Yeah. Going to be interesting to see if uh, if that kind of populism can can uh, can happen again. Watch this space. It, well, 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 well. Uh, Maybe the closest uh, thing to that was uh, in the 2016 uh, Senate election in Louisiana. There was uh, uh, that's we had a Ryan runoff that December where John Kennedy, who's there now, you know, he's uh, the the. the uh, <laughs> the Hill seems to love him because he has all these cutesy phrases. Oh, uh, he's very quotable, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he, uh, he's, uh, that was his third attempt. Uh, he's been, uh, yeah, he's been all over the map in terms of his stances. But anyway, uh, 
when he got elected in 2016, he beat this guy Foster Campbell. He was a Democrat, and I think he's uh, I think he's still on the, the, the public service commitment mission. And uh, one of Campbell's things was I think at some point in his career he was uh, was pushing for maybe some tax on the, on the oil companies or uh, he was. Uh, he was perceived as more hostile towards oil than most of your standard Democrats in Louisiana. And he was, uh, most of the, the area where, uh, oil is probably most important in the state is Acadiana, which, uh, you kind of, you kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you kind of combine the, uh, the cultural conservatism of Acadiana, they're heavily Catholic, pro-life, uh, with the National Democrats' hostility to oil, uh, put on top of that, uh, if they had, they had Campbell as a candidate, uh, he did, uh, I think in some of those parishes, Campbell was struggling to break out of the teams. It was very, uh, it was not received well of that there. And I think even, uh, uh, what what really kind of sped that trend up was uh, the uh, was the BP uh, oil spill back in 2010, where the, the uh, it was a bad uh, it was certainly a bad disaster, but the kind of tone of the National Democratic Party under Obama was okay. We have to uh, we have to put uh, I think Obama put on put a moratorium on oil drilling for a few years, which today did, did, uh, did not sit well with the voters that down there. In fact, uh, one of Obama's biggest uh, opponents on his oil moratorium was Mary Landrieu. Uh, but that's after the oil spill is when you really started to see uh, in some of those parishes along the, 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 the coast, uh, where Republicans really made some uh, some rapid gain, gains, at least in terms of voter registration. Uh, one example that I, that uh, that I always like to, to uh, point to is uh, all of her three successful attempts at the Senate. Mary Landrieu carried carried this parish called called. Lafouche Parish. It's kind of uh, right outside of the New Orleans metro. It's along uh, it's along the coast. There's a heavy uh, there's a heavy oil presence. And since they're historically about as yellow dog as it gets, mm-hmm. uh, in 2018 she lost it by like 24 points, and it was. I think one of the few parishes that Mary Landry would always carry when she won, uh, but would never vote for John Bell Edwards. Uh, so there have been some pretty, uh, pretty big shifts there because of the politics of oil. Well, Miles, it is time for us to come to what we call the dangerous part of the show. Okay. It's where we spin the wheel of Randy. Spin the wheel, spin the wheel, spin the wheel of Randy. A hundred songs at random, 
and let's see what comes up. And you have landed on another political song, Beehive State. Do you know this song? I actually don't, but I'm assuming it has something to do with Utah. It does have to do with Utah. <laughs> uh, let me share my screen real quick, and we'll do a listen to this together. Bet my money on a bobtown rag all the yeah. doodah day. Good. All right, and we're back. Okay, what do you think of Beehive State? I liked it. It was uh, it, uh, it kind of hit on some of the same themes we were talking about in in the kingfish because he was talking about you know, okay, this is for the former. We stand behind the the the, the little man. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, also, uh, it. It made me think a few years long because the the uh, the senator from Utah is, is dreaming big, you know. He's yeah, uh-huh. building uh... enormous infrastructure here. And uh, I'm, I'm a water engineer, so I know that the irrigating Utah is is no small feat. Yeah, definitely. So I love how the Kansas guy he's just asking for a firehouse, and then <laughs> Utah's asking for the absolute world here. Yeah, but, but you look at, at, at the history of, of irrigation in the West, and we've spent, I, what around here we call stupid money. We have spent stupid money. Yeah, and uh, in the West. Honestly, I've been told by a lot of my, uh, I've never really been west of Houston. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've flown a few times to California, but that's not, you know, that's, uh, yeah. but when, but when we're talking about the Great Plains interior West, I mean, I really, some of my friends who were from that area say, you know, we really, uh, as a person who's from the Eastern United States, I really don't have, I probably don't an appreciation for some of the issues they face out there when, when it comes to, uh, irrigation or even stuff or even stuff like fires. Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up in, in Alabama, and moving here and seeing the way that, 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 that people take water very, very seriously. Uh, once yeah. west of about I-35, uh, you know, we engineers joke that east of I-35, you're paid to get rid of water, and west of I-35, you're paid to find it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's well, well, uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm glad you said you're from Alabama, baby, because, uh, I, uh, something else that I was going to say that kind of linked into another song, uh, was when it comes, to, uh, uh, one of my other favorite songs off the good old boys in Birmingham. And yep. of course the story is about a guy who works in a steel mill. And I remember I was, uh, I was watching kind of recently a documentary on George Wallace and he was talking about, okay, well, 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 uh, Birmingham itself, there's a lot of the working class, lots of steel mill and stuff like that there. Uh, but he would say something to the effect of, uh, most of the company executives live in Mellonbrook, which is, you know, right, uh, right over the, the, the they uh, hill. They uh, all all the company executives would drive their limousines over to Mountain Brook, have lunch, 
yeah. and then go back to see the working people after that. that well, uh, we were talking about uh, kind of like how John Bell Edwards did good with the uh, <laughs> with the kind of uh, arrogant Frenchman. You know who's from Mountain is Doug Jones. Uh, oh, so it's okay. the Democrats kind of coming from the higher income, you know, not what uh, I feel like for most of the party's history, the Democrats were the party of kind of the good old boys. Yeah. And now they're coming from these other areas. Uh, you know, uh, New Orleans, uh, uh, so I thought that was uh, maybe another parallel there. Yeah. Well, Miles, I got to wrap this up. Thank you so much okay, for joining sure. us. Tell, tell, tell the audience where, where they can get hold of you. Yeah, sure. If you, uh, I'm, uh, more or less, I'm pretty much always on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at jmilescoleman. And then if you uh, – I would encourage everyone to check out Sabato's Chris Tipico Ball uh, – Pretty, pretty much. If you put that into Google, it's it should be the first thing, uh, first thing that comes up uh, for Sabato's Crystal Ball should be our homepage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we do is we uh, every Thursday morning we put out a new. Uh, the Crystal Ball is basically a newsletter where we uh, usually have a few articles every week. Uh, so if uh, if your listeners uh, could subscribe to the Crystal Ball, it's free. Uh, in addition to our website, they'll get something in their inbox every Thursday morning with uh, with some of our content. It's it's always a it's always an informative read, and 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 Miles is a very very entertaining Twitter follower as well. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. All right, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Wheel of Randy for links to today's songs. Thanks to Good Trash Media for distributing this show. Thanks to Brian Mays for our artwork. Check him out on Facebook at Brian Mays Art. Thanks to Matt Farley for our original music. Check out his many, many compositions at moternmedia.com. That's M-O-T-E-R-N. Our background music is Rock and Gravel by Sid Valentine's Patent Leather Kids. You can find that wherever you get your public domain ragtime. Wheel of Randy is brought to you by Wade Engineering. We are a water and sewer engineering firm registered in Oklahoma and Texas. And if you ask nicely, we'll register in your state too. Wade specializes in hydraulic modeling. If you're a city or a rural water district or a fire department, You've got to get a hydraulic model. First thing, before you spend one more dollar on construction, get a model. If you're an engineering firm, don't do hydraulic modeling yourself. This isn't something you can learn on the job. It's very easy for a hydraulic model to give you the wrong answer if you're not careful. Play it safe and bring in an expert. Wade Engineering can be reached at 405 426 76 Three, four. See you next time, everybody. Bye. It's Wheel of Randy.